Welcome. This is the fourth of the anatomy of the lower limb, and uh, this is the anatomy of the hip. Firstly, we're going to consider the hip osteology. There are inherent gender differences, which I'll go into also in the podcasting of the pelvis, but that's not going to be available until next year. And uh, this has a particular relevance in the uh, pelvimetric measurements, pelvimetry for obstetric purposes and the assessment of those where there will be the prenatal determination of cephalopelvic disproportion and also for understanding the archetypal pelvis such as the gynecoid, android, anthropoid and platypeloid variants. I'm not going to discuss these elements of this. You'll have to wait till next year for those interested when we're doing the podcasts on the pelvis towards the end of next year. Now, if you have access to a separate hip or a nominate bone, please assess this as I go through it. The bone is divisible into three, the pubis, the ischium and the ileum. The ischiopubic elements form the bony wall for the pelvic cavity, that is the territory between the defined pelvic inlet and the pelvic outlet, with the outer edge giving origin to the thigh musculature. The projected part of the ileum above the pelvic brim is the so-called false pelvis, which attaches muscles for the posterior abdominal wall. The outer ileum originates the buttock muscles. So the bone needs to be held in its anatomical position such that the anterior superior iliac spine and the pubic tubercle are in the same vertical plane. And the symphysis and the ischial spines are in the same horizontal plane. That's the normal orientation. The nerve compartment structure of the lower limb reflects these three components that we've described with the pubis innervated by the obturator nerve, the ileum by the femoral nerve, and the ischium by the ischiatic, or as we know it, the sciatic nerve. And now that's how the limb is structured. Now we can examine the lateral surface of the hip bone. It's dominated by the incompletely closed acetabular cup, the area closed that area closed really by the transverse acetabular ligament. The pubis and the ileum meet at an area called the iliopubic eminence, and that's best seen on the inside of the bone as a small elevation, if you're following this. The depth of the hip joint is increased in life by the acetabular labrum, and the synovial membrane is reflected here and over the transverse ligament, and along the ligamentum teres, which is attached to the femoral head, the fovea capitis, and the transverse ligament. And that area covers the haversian fat pad. The ileum contributes to the greater sciatic notch, and it runs up at the back between the posterior inferior and posterior superior iliac spines. This is useful if you are given a hip bone and have to describe it or discuss it in an oral diver. 
This then gives way to the iliac crest, which runs between the posterior and anterior superior iliac spines. You can trace these out in order to orientate yourself. And there's a strong convexity here, but you can also notice that it's curved in the other dimension, namely that is from front to back, actually as a double sinuous, or even I might call it a serpiginous curve. And your hand falls posteriorly into a small cavity and then runs forward over the bone anteriorly. And that's all the attachment of the gluteus medius and gluteus minimus muscles. The crest is actually very complex because it attaches strips of large muscle sheets and it's built up around the anterior superior iliac spine externally. The built-up area is called the tubercle of the iliac crest, which is the most prominent part of the iliac crest, but not its apex, which is formed at the so-called supracrystal plane that passes through the level of the spine of L4, and that can be useful for um, uh, CAT scan assessment. That line is between the highest part of both iliac crests, uh, and that's the point really for counting also the place of a lumbar puncture. So these are why we think of these particular um, uh, kind of landmarks. We see the gluteal surface of the bone. That area demonstrates classic lines on it. The posterior gluteal line, if you look at the back, and it runs down to the posterior inferior iliac spine from the crest in the way we've defined it. Um, it's a prominent ridge and flat area that gives attachment to part of the gluteus maximus. The next is then the middle gluteal line. That's a more sinuous line, as you can see, that runs from the tubercle down towards the greater sciatic notch, and that's the attachment of the gluteus medius there. The inferior gluteal line now runs down just below the anterior superior iliac spine towards the greater sciatic notch as a more kind of horizontal line. And between the anterior superior iliac spine and the tubercle is the origin laterally of the tensor fasciae latae. Below this, the region between the inferior and the middle gluteal line, as I've said before, is the origin of the gluteus minimus. And below that, there's a small indentation between or against the acetabular rim, and that's for the reflected head of the rectus femoris. If you move anteriorly, you'll then see that the anterior superior iliac spine and the attachment of sartorius is there, and below that um, region there's the attachment of the straight head of the rectus femoris muscle, and I think also a part of the iliofemoral, so-called bigelow's ligament of the hip. If we then move more posteriorly on the other side, between the posterior superior and posterior inferior iliac spine is a rough area that attaches the sacrotuberous ligament. So we've described the whole outer surface of this bone. Now this crest area, the iliac crest area, is a bit complicated and can be understood by looking on top of the crest. Posteriorly is the attachment of the gluteus maximus, which we've said, and on its other side is the erector spinae, at least the iliocostalis part. Um, we will be doing separate podcasts on the back, but that won't be for some considerable while, I imagine. Uh, it will be um, not next year, but even the year after. The outer part 
has also the attachment of the latissimus dorsi muscle and the posterior lamella of the lumbar fascia. So it's a bit anterior to the gluteus origin, nearly halfway along the bone going down towards the ASIS. If you move, move posteriorly, again, you'll find the attachment of the iliolumbar ligament and over a short distance, the quadratus lumborum. So they're all packed into this area, posterior area of the iliac crest. Uh, we'll consider the quadratus lumborum muscle in much greater detail when we look at the posterior uh, abdominal wall next year. But that part of the bone can be a little ridged because it takes also the anterior and the middle lamellae of lumbar or thoracolumbar fascia because they split around the quadratus lumborum muscle itself here. It's interesting to note that these fascial attachments were once important because they would limit the spread of deep bony sepsis. That was a feature of lumbar osteomyelitis and the less common lumbar tuberculosis. So tuberculosis is more common in the thoracic spine and then maybe the lumbar and then the cervical in that origin. So these were relevant fascial markings of the attachment of the lumbar fascia for um, that kind of sepsis and also for unchecked and untreated renal sepsis because there's no inferior limit to gerotus fascia which could affect the uh, uh, lamellae of the uh, uh, thoracolumbar fascia. Now if we move forward on the bone, this is on the iliac crest from this slight ridge, the internal oblique takes origin from most of the rest of the bone and on its inside over a shorter distance running towards the ASIS more deeply the transversus abdominis muscle. So one comes, one comes from the centre of the bone, the other really from the inner lip of the crest which is as you'd expect. The external oblique attaches to the outer lip of the lower half of the uh, crest. Of course, the inguinal ligament attaches to the anterior superior iliac spine. And as we said in a previous podcast, the fasciolata attaches to the entire length of the outer lip of the iliac crest. And you can review that in, in ALL2, the second uh, part of the lower limb series. The fascia here attaches to the posterior gluteal line after it's split front and back over the tensor fasciolata. This is the fasciolata we're talking about and the gluteus maximus. So that fascial attachment is important to split in front of and behind these two muscles as they separate away from the iliac bone. Um, the sartorius, we remember, also comes from the tip of the anterior superior iliac spine and a small lip of the bone inferiorly. <clears throat> so that's basically the outer surface and looking at the top of the iliac crest again just if you look at it uh, on the outer side is the erector spiny and more inwards the gluteus maximus posteriorly and then posteriorly you've got the latissimus dorsi over a small fraction which is the similar sort of length of origin internally of the quadratus lumborum. The internal oblique has its origin on the middle aspect, if you like, of the uh, iliac crest over most of it uh, down to the front and then uh, externally over a lower um, or a shorter uh, distance is the external oblique, internally over a similar distance is the transversus abdominis. And then right at the um, uh, back of the 
uh, area near the anterior superior iliac spine is the tensa fasciae latae and right on the tip and the lower lip, if you like, of the anterior superior iliac spine is the sartorius. So one can draw it, if you like, to imagine it in a kind of three-dimension pack. Now we're on to the, then the body of the pubis, and that's divisible into a superior pubic ramus, which joins the ischium and the ilium at the acetabulum, and an inferior pubic ramus, which joins the two below the obturator foramen. So these are the differences between the superior and inferior pubic rami. And that appreciation allows you to understand the anatomy of the approach, for example, to a strangulated femoral hernia from above, or in the dissection of the lateral pelvis to appreciate where the obturator artery and nerve go towards the obturator foramen. The medial aspect of the pubic bone here is formed as the pubic symphysis, where two bones of the joint, the so-called physis, a rather unique kind of joint comprising a fibrocartilaginous disc between the articular surfaces of the pubic bones and which meet the bodies of one another, a kind of secondary cartilaginous joint of hyaline cartilage with a central fluid-filled space that has no synovial lining. There's a superior pubic limit and below a so-called inferior or more commonly called arcuate pubic ligament. Now we can trace the upper border here because this defines the anatomy of the pelvic inlet. But away from the pubic symphysis, we then come immediately and follow this on, a, on an innominate bone to the pubic crest. That's the insertional point of the rectus abdominis. And also in presence, the pyramidalis muscle, as well as part of the conjoint tendon. That's something I'll discuss in much more detail when next year we tackle the abdominal wall. But suffice to say that it's the fused upon neuroses of the internal oblique and the transversus abdominis that are critical in the formation and management of a direct inguinal hernia. So we've come across, we're following now the line of the pubic, uh, of the pelvic inlet. This is the line of the roof, if you like, of the uh, pelvis. So we've gone from the pubic symphysis to the pubic tubercle, uh, uh, to the pubic crest, and now we're on to the pubic tubercle, which attaches the inguinal ligament, or so-called pupa's ligament. And then we come to the ridge of the superior pubic ramus, which we typically call the pectineal line. And that's part of the attachment of the conjoint tendon is there, and also the lacuna ligament of Gimbernard. And here also is the periosteum of the pectineal line, which some people call the pectineal ligament of Cooper, after Astley Cooper. This pectineal line runs along the superior pubic ramus and it runs into that iliopubic eminence I've mentioned, which is an attachment point for the psoas minor muscle, but it's also the place of the cartilaginous epiphysis between the component parts of the innominate bone. This then runs, your finger then runs along an area called the arcuate line of the ilium and then around to the sacroiliac joint. You're next on to the ala or the wing of the sacrum and then the sacral promontory. So when we're defining the pelvic inlet, which is very important, we need to be particularly specific. Below the pectineal line is a rounder ridge, which is called the obturator crest. And that area runs down towards the acetabular notch. Below that obturator crest is, of course, the obturator groove, which houses the obturator artery and nerve. 
the artery typically lying under the nerve, which lies actually directly against the bone as they go through the obturator membrane. Now, these areas overlap a little. The pectineus, for example, originating from just below the pectineal line and the way I've defined it, in that area between the pubic tubicle and the iliopubic eminence. And the pubofemoral ligament of the hip, which we'll discuss later, also attaching to that so-called lateral obturator crest. Below is the body of the pubis, uh, with the round adductor longus tendon taking its origin, and below that is a small line of origin of the gracilis muscle. The um, adductor brevis is actually deep here, and this comes from a small area of the pubic body above, and then along the inferior ramus are the pubic fibres of the adductor magnus. The obturator membrane attaches, obviously, the obturator externus. So we've covered, therefore, all of the adductor muscles, or at least mentioned them. We'll go into, uh, uh, we have gone into greater detail of these muscles. Uh, but uh, these are, therefore, the adductor bre or adductors brevis, longus, and magnus, and the gracilis, and not to forget the deep obturator externus. The fascia lata runs on the front and the back of the adductor longus and the gracilis, and it separates this area from the superficial perineal pouch and the external genitalia, and that's important in perineal sepsis. The ischium we're left with, that's an L-shaped bit of bone that joins the pubis and ilium of the body, and then on to the inferior ramus to complete the obturator foramen. The upper body here completes the greater sciatic notch with the spine projecting into the pelvis medially. Here, of course, it differs in the archetypal pelvis like the android and anthropoid pelvis. More of this in another podcast. And, of course, it creates the lesser sciatic notch as well. The spine gives origin to the superior gemellus muscle, but also the attachment of the sacrospinous ligament, which is extremely important in defining the uh, perineum and the lesser sciatic notch, and is the point where the internal pudendal vessels and the pudendal nerve actually leave the pelvis and they enter the perineum. The inferior gemellus arises from the upper edge of the ischial tuberosity, and if you look at the tuberosity, there's a transverse ridge on it, and below a rather vertical ridge with the semimembranosus tendon attaching laterally and a combined kind of medial attachment of the semitendinosus and the long-headed biceps. Now, I must say, I always get this bit confused. So if you're looking at the tuberosity or dissecting it in the cadaver, the semimembranosus is above the semitendinosus and biceps immediately, and they appear as a kind of thick combined tendon with the adductor magnus below and lateral also, like a very thick string, string tendon. And there's a small area between the semimembranosus and the obturator membrane, which is free for the origin of the quadratus femoris. The developing ischiopubic ramus attaches the hamstring part of the adductor magnus and also part of the sacrotuberous ligament attaches to that particular ridge, a so-called falciform ridge. 
the medial surface of the bone is then next. We've looked at the outer surfaces of all of these, the ileum, the pubis and the ischium. When you turn the bone around, you're looking then at the medial surface. Now, I don't want to go into this area in detail because this is more relevant for the discussion of the pelvis and the perineum. But just here, however, we can say that the inner aspect of the superior pubic ramus attaches the specialised components of the levator ani muscle, which surround the pelvic viscera as these move from the pelvis through the levator floor into the perineum. So that these comprise, for example, the pubourethralis muscle around the urethra and the pubourethral ligaments, the pubovaginalis or its homologous equivalent in the male, the puboprostaticus, and the puborectalis muscle in both sexes. Anteriorly, hooking up the rectum, the coloproctologist surgeon, as, as I once was, can recognise really a very formal rectourethralis, which holds the rectum up in a very acute angulation against the back uh, of the pubis. And this is important clinically uh, because uh, when divided, the bottom end, uh, uh, as you're doing uh, the bottom end of an abdominoperineal excision, that allows the rectum to fall backwards. So you've got to define the pillars of that rectourethralis, which are acutely angulating the rectum at that point. Once you divide those, the rectum then just falls backward. And um, uh, if you go too far anteriorly, you can get into the uh, prostate, even into the urethra, uh, which is not a disaster. One can just leave a catheter in place uh, long term, uh, six or uh, eight weeks or so. Um, uh, if you go too uh, posteriorly, of course, you perforate the rectum, which is, is a disaster because that increases the risk of sepsis, but also uh, in rectal cancer, the likelihood of uh, loco-regional recurrence. So understanding this particular anatomy is extremely important. Below is, of course, the inferior pubic ramus, and that lies in the perineum. And here there's an attachment subpubically, if you like, to the deep dorsal vein of the penis or of the clitoris and the attachment of the perineal membrane. We'll go into that in much greater detail when we talk about the perineum. Laterally, of course, lies the corpus cavernosum and the ischiocavernosus muscle. And here the upper margin of the inferior pubic ramus is the outer part of the ischioanal, what we used to call the ischiorectal fossa. And it's here that the inferior rectal nerve and vessels lie. That's a really important zone for the spread of perirectal sepsis. So also here is the dorsal nerve and the artery laterally over the obturator membrane. And a large part of the ileum lies the obturator internus, which fills the mouth of the lesser sciatic foramen, and which I'll discuss next year in detail when we consider the anatomy of the pelvis and the pelvic sidewalls. But suffice to say that the obturator internus takes its origin from a much larger amount of bone internally than the obturator externus, which really only attaches to the obturator membrane. Um, I can assure you that this complicated area will be fully explained next year. For our purposes today, there's quite an extensive, as I've said, bony origin of the obturator internus from the body of the ischium, the arcuate line, part of the greater sciatic notch, and the obturator membrane in that part below the sulcus. 
and the inferior pubic ramus from the ischium right down to the falciform ridge in the way we've defined it. The inner aspect of the ischial tuberosity below the spine is that so-called falciform ridge, and that gives a, a long attachment, as I said earlier, to the sacrotuberous ligament, which also here forms part of the roof of the perineum, sort of supralaterally. The pudendal, so-called Alcox canal, attaches here in a fascial sleeve to protect the pudendal nerve and vessels as they enter the perineum. And the transverse perineal muscles, the transverse perinei as they're called, also attach here at the anterior ramus. Now, I should mention a little about the ossification, and in our discussion of the pelvis, I'll also consider gender differences, but we'll mention something briefly here. The bone forms in cartilage. The ileum appears first at about the second month, the ischium at the third month, and the pubis at the fourth month. And all of this uh, joined acetabulum is actually cartilage, uh, with at birth very little bone to the ileum and pubis. The ischium and pubis fuse by about seven years of age with strips of cartilage at the iliac crest, the anterior inferior iliac spine, the pubic symphysis, ischial tuberosity and ischial spine. And that Y-shaped acetabular cartilage ossifies at puberty with some separate ossific centres which are called the ossa acetabuli. The rest of any cartilage kind of fuses in the way I've mentioned all of those sites, fuses at the time of skeletal maturity. Another point we are mentioning, obviously, just here are some little bits about gender differences from the hip point of view. The differences in the hip or in nominate bone uh, can be better seen in an articulated pelvis, um, either separately or an articulated skeleton. But we can make some comments at any rate on the isolated hip. You can check it out. The greater sciatic notch in the female is more of a right angle, um, but it's much more acute in the male. The ischial spine is less projected in the female towards the pelvis. In other words, it's in the same plane almost as the ischium. Uh, in the male, it's pushed inwards, which is particularly contributory to the so-called android and also the anthropoid pelvis, more a kind of hourglass pelvis. Now, there are differences in the obturator foramen as well. That's very triangular in the female and more oval in the male. And you can look at the hip that you may have and try and figure out whether you think it's a male or a female hip isolated. The other interesting thing is the distance from the pubic tubicle to the acetabular margin is greater than the diameter of the acetabulum in the female. And that is, I like to think of it as that there's kind of more hip in the female than in the male. You could think of women as being more hip. And these distances in the male are the same, as I've said, that distance from the pubic tubicle to the acetabular margin, or even less than the size of the acetabulum. So we're next on uh, to the hip joint proper.
Now, hopefully we know a little bit about the uh, uh, hip bone, the innominate bone. Uh, I'll often give someone an exam that bone and just ask them to talk about it. So we can now at least answer that kind of question. Now, I want to move on to the hip joint. Now, this is the best example in the body of a ball and socket joint. It swaps with the shoulder joint, uh, which we've already considered in the last podcast series. It swaps stability for mobility. In the hip, the socket is, of course, enhanced by the labrum acetabulari, like the labrum glenoidale, the strength of the hip joint ligaments, and also by the angulation of the neck, but also the differential width of the neck compared with the head, which allows a fair bit of movement, but which also increases the risk of fracture, uh, which I'll consider later. So these differentials create a very mobile, um, but also a very stable hip. Now, we remember that the acetabulum has the three components, which I mentioned, with the Y-shaped cartilage forming the epiphyseal junction. As this closes just after puberty, uh, that differs from the scapula, which is closing at skeletal maturity with its equivalent homologous parts. The point of this fusion is actually at that iliopubic eminence, which I've mentioned before. And that point is also seen just below the greater sciatic notch at the ileum ischium junction. And that's one of the cartilage aspects of the Y-shape with the vertical part of that Y-shape passing inferiorly as a vertical line down to the acetabular notch territory. So you can get an idea of that cartilaginous articulation and of the three developing bones that are adjoining. The acetabular notch, as I've already said, is closed in by that transverse acetabular ligament, which is adherent here, to the ligamentum teres, the ligament of the head of the femur. And of course, with the other end, attaching to the dip or pit in the head of the femur, which is called the fovea femoris. So that you can appreciate that in the concavity is a central non-articular pad, and that's filled in with that Haversian fat pad, which I briefly mentioned. It's called Haversian after a, a guy called Clopton Havers, who was a 17th century British physician, who also identified the Haversian system within bone, because it's a closely packed collection, and in this case, of fat, which is surrounded by fibrous tissue septum. Now, I said before that the neck is narrower than the equatorial diameter of the head, and that actually means that the head can rotate quite a bit on the acetabulum before it starts to actually impinge on the labrum. Now, there are some unique things here about the capsule. Put simply, it just follows the course of the adjoining or articulating surfaces. But it runs against the labrum and the transverse acetabular ligament and down onto the front of the femur to the obliquely placed intertrochanteric line, if you follow that on the front of the femur. On the back, it actually, if you turn the femur around, it actually only runs halfway down the neck. So, you know, we, we mention this always. So why is it important? Um, in any bit of anatomy that you're learning, I, I like to stress, as in these podcasts, that you must distinguish between what you read or see or even dissect yourselves 
and what you've just seen or read or done, what that actually means. If you grab a femur, if you can, you'll see on the front of the intertrochanteric line and above, going all the way to the head, the bone is perforated by minute vascular foramina. Actually, these are most important on the posterior and superior surface of the neck if you turn the bone around. These are the retinacular vessels running up inside the capsule that supply the head. Because the capsule is short at the back, when the neck of femur fractures, the fracture is therefore intracapsular. Now we hear all these terms all the time, but what do they mean? It means that there is a tense, contained hemarthrosis, a tense collection of blood inside the capsule of the fractured neck of femur. If the retinacular vessels themselves don't break, the rest of them will be tamponaded or compressed or occluded by the pressure of this tense hemarthrosis, and that too will damage the blood supply to the head. These fractures, of course, are then prone to avascular necrosis of the head, quite apart from the fact that the ligamentum cherries, with its little obturator vessel, is usually obliterated by adolescence. And that explains the risks in fractured neck of femur and why, in anticipation, the patients are managed with hip replacements immediately. Quite a different matter to an intertrochanteric fracture, for example, which is extracapsular and with far less risk of avascular necrosis of the head and which can obviously be managed with reduction and internal fixation. The retinacular vessels may be injured there, but there are other factors that contribute to head blood supply. Got it? Of course, the blood supply here comes from the trochanteric anastomosis, which I discussed in the last podcast. Now, this capsule has some rather important ligaments, as we know. These ligaments archetypically arise from the three components of the bone already discussed, as the iliofemoral ligament, the so-called Bigelow's ligament, after Henry Jacob Bigelow. He was a 19th century American professor of surgery at Harvard University, a very interesting person. We need to have a podcast in the anatomy podcast, uh, in the anatomy cupboard on him. So the anterior one is the iliofemoral ligament or Bigelow's ligament. That's a Y-shaped ligament, perhaps more correctly an upside-down V. And that comes from the anterior inferior iliac spine, as I said before, and that acetabular rim. And these spread across the intertrochanteric line. There is a pubofemoral ligament, obviously, and that comes from the iliopubic eminence territory. And there's an ischiofemoral ligament uh, uh, segment, which is actually the weakest part that arises, as you'd expect, from the postero-inferior margin of the acetabulum, with its fibres running like a kind of transverse band around the back of the neck of the femur, and that transverse band is called the zona orbicularis, so that it acts a little like a check on the hip, somewhat akin to the rotator con uh, uh, cuff constraints in the shoulder. So all these three Aspects, embryological, if you like, aspects of the bone, ilium, ischium, pubis, all have their muscle compartments, all have their nerve com uh, compartmental nerves, and all have their ligamentous attachments to the hip. That's just the way it works. And I find that it's easier to remember all of these things uh, if we think of it in that way. The synovial membrane, 
does what it should in all other joints. And in this case, apart from its articular surface attachments, it is reflected off the ligamentum teres and that haversian fat pad, as I've described it, with often a communication with a large bursa between the iliofemoral ligament, which is very strong, but thinnest anteriorly, and the pubofemoral ligament in the way I've defined it. Now, other bursae joining the hip joint include one under the gluteus medius, one under the gluteus minimus, some under the gluteus maximus, usually there's one near the front of the greater trochanter, one at the back near the ischial tuberosity, one against the upper strap of the vastus lateralis. That latter one actually acts to separate the iliotibial tract from the vastus lateralis, and that's often called in books the gluteofemoral bursa. It's not a great term. At the front is, of course, the iliofemoral bursa, and the psoas muscle here separates the capsule from the femoral artery, whereas the iliacus component separates it from the femoral nerve, and that's part of their job. The pectineus muscle does that job intervening between the joint and the femoral vein more immediately, so you don't need a bursa there. And at the back, if you have a prosected specimen to look at, the same effect is achieved to separate the sciatic nerve by the intervening tricipital tendon, which is the obturator internus and the superior and inferior gemelli, and you don't need a bursa there. So these are separating elements that are separating things from the femoral vein, artery and nerve, or from the sciatic nerve. And that explains that particular uh, piece of anatomy. We mentioned the blood supply, but the head and neck receive blood supply from that trochanteric anastomosis, and most particularly from the medial circumflex femoral artery, which also can be injured uh, directly in a fractured neck of femur. The nerve supply, of course, to the hip are the three nerves of the pelvic girdle, in the way I've defined them, in accordance with their embryological formation. The femoral nerve uh, gives a branch to the hip, that's via the nerve to rectus femoris. The sciatic or ischiatic nerve gives a branch to the hip via the nerve to quadratus femoris. The obturator nerve gives a branch to the hip directly, usually, from the anterior division of the obturator nerve. Now, a couple of things should be said about, I think, the surgical approaches to the hip as well, and that's important so that we understand the surgical anatomy of what we've talked about. These are typically the posterior, direct lateral and direct anterior approaches to the hip. In the posterior approach, an incision is made five centimetres below the greater trochanter at the lateral centre of the femoral diaphysis. It curves really downwards to the posterior superior iliac spine for about five to seven centimetres. The fascia lata is incised um, uh, and the iliotibial bands and the gluteus maximus are split and the hip is then internally rotated with identification of the piriformis and the other short lateral rotators, which are detached from the greater trochanter very close to where they insert. And these are reflected, taking care of the sciatic nerve. So that the posterior hip capsule is then exposed in that way. And usually a T-shaped capsulotomy is performed. The hip can then be dislocated by further internal rotation with a little flexion and adduction and then some traction. And if the whole thing's very contracted or fixed, the gluteus can be incised a little more and the lower part of the capsule can be opened with even a little bit of release of the rectus femoris. Now, 
in the direct lateral approach, which is often called the halving approach, the incision is started two to four centimetres proximal to uh, the anterior middle third of the greater trochanter, and it's extended distally in line with the femur to a point about four to six centimetres distal to the greater trochanter. The skin's cut down to the fasciolata and the iliotibial tract just lateral to the greater trochanter. It's extended proximally and distally, identifying the anterior border of the gluteus medius and then splitting it into the an in the anterior middle third or so, so that the posterior capsule can be incised in the same line with the vastus lateralis and then exposed and split up to the tenderness insertion of the gluteus medius, leaving a little cuff of that for later repair. If you tense the capsule with a little hip adduction, the hip can then be dislocated by traction and external rotation and a little bit of further adduction. So it's a different manoeuvre. Um, in the direct anterior approach, there's more muscle sparing, uh, kind of an intermuscular and internervous plane is created, and that's used between the sartorius and the tensor fasciolate. But there is a bit of a risk in that approach of a lateral femoral cutaneous nerve injury, which can actually have quite a morbidity attached to it. The incision begins three centimetres lateral and distal in this um, direct anterior approach. It's uh, three centimetres lateral and distal to the anterior superior ilex spine. It's extended for six to eight centimetres uh, through the tensor fascia latte, which is incised longitudinally in line with the muscle fibres and within the tensor fascia latte sheath to protect that lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, and then towards the fat stripe between the tensor fascia latte and sartorius. And it's typically seen, actually, uh, often uh, verifying the uh, that interval. Additional blunt dissection through this fat stripe interval where you can actually feel the femoral neck can be made. Sartorius and the rectus femoris are typically retracted medially to expose this so-called Smith-Peterson interval. And any ascending branches there of the lateral femoral cutaneous artery are encountered because that's been separating components of the femoral nerve, which are quite extensive there. And those little uh, branches of the lateral femoral circumflex artery in the Smith-Peterson interval need to be diathermied. The capsule of the hip joint can then be seen there near the rectus femoris and flexion actually relaxes the rectus muscle a little for an anterior capsulotomy. Uh, I've got to stress I'm not an orthopaedic surgeon, but there are other approaches. Um, I've just outlined the basis of uh, what I've seen uh, and also uh, from speaking uh, to orthopaedic surgeons about different approaches. There are whole articles about the advantages and disadvantages of different techniques for particular disorders. Uh, but there are also a lot of other approaches. You could classify them into approaches which access the joint in front or behind with an intact gluteus medius or those which access the joint by division of the gluteus medius tendon insertion uh, or through the tendon or through the uh, greater trochanter. 
there's an ideal um, surgical approach which follows the internervous and intermuscular planes, which allows exposure of both the femoral head and the acetabulum, whilst also allowing good proximal and distal extension when needed. That would be the description of an ideal approach. And those with a specific interest, I think, can look this up. Uh, there are medial approaches via the adductors between the adductor longus and gracilis. There's an anterior approach between the sartorius and the tensor fasciae latae, as described briefly by me. Uh, anterolateral approaches between the gluteus medius and the tensor fasciae latae. Posterior approaches which split the gluteus maximus and which, as I've said, take down the short lateral rotators lateral approaches through the abductor mechanism which themselves can be further classified upon technique as via the greater trochanter so you'll read about transtrochanteric or by trochanteric flip osteotomy for example and through the gluteus medius tendon which is of course the direct lateral approach which I've already mentioned. If any of you wish or, uh, to have me more formally go through these anatomical aspects of these approaches, their clinical advantages and disadvantages, I'd be happy to do so. If you wish, you can let me know through the Anatopod Facebook, or now it's Meta, messaging site. We'll kick off the next podcast with the back of the thigh, which we have left uncovered, and also with the anatomy of the patella and the patellofemoral joint as well as the popliteal fossa and, of course, the anatomy of the knee. So quite a bit to cover there then. Um, I'd remind you, if you can, uh, to look at our, our Patreon site, which I've attached um, um, to this uh, podcast blurb. Uh, if you can help us uh, on uh, patreon.podbean.com slash anatopod, uh, anatopod all in capitals, A-N-A-T-O-P-O-D, and we're most grateful. Uh, the aim will be the conversion of this into a subscriber-based uh, uh, website uh, over this coming year. Um, that, I hope, will have cheat sheets, practice exams, and exam bank, uh, which uh, people will find helpful. There'll be a blog attached to it for people to get uh, the scripts of these podcasts, and uh, there'll be, for those interested, We'll continue with the history of anatomy and also uh, with the historical vignettes of the anatomy cupboard. At any rate, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.